Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 2nd. It's lunchtime in Berkeley, California. It's always, of course, lunchtime in Berkeley, California. This is the home of Alice Waters and Shea Panisse and all those very sexy next generation food writers like Michael Pollan. Um, we're going to talk about food today, so it's appropriate that we are talking uh, at lunchtime from Berkeley, California. Um, the news today, of course, it's always Joe Biden, which is fortunate, I think, for many of us. Uh, Pete Buttigieg just got confirmed as Secretary of Transportation. And next up, there's a controversial hearing on the next Secretary of Agriculture, a guy called Tom Vilsack. He's controversial. A lot of people don't like him, particularly, I think, progressives. Apparently, according at least to the New Republic, American agriculture is broken and Tom Vilsack is not the man to fix it. Well, I don't know who is the man to fix it. One guy who I think has done a lot of thinking about American agriculture and fixing not only American agriculture and food is my guest today on the show. Um, he is uh, an authority on food politics. Uh, Robert Palberg, I'm going to call him Rob because that's what his friends call him, uh, is the author of a number of really interesting books about the politics of food, one appropriately called Food Politics. And today he has a new book out, Resetting the Table, straight talk about the food we grow and eat. So, Rob, um, Let's have some straight talk. Imagine Tom Vilsack is watching today. What does he need to do with American agriculture? Oh, I think America's food system is clearly broken. Uh, we have 42% of the adult population now is clinically obese with an associated burden of, of disease, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke. It's uh, uh, Our food system is in deep trouble, but I don't think the trouble comes from agriculture. It doesn't come from farming. It comes from food companies. It comes from retailers. It comes from restaurant chains. It doesn't come from farming. And this, uh, this frustrates me uh, because so many people who say our food system is broken uh, are suggesting changes in farming that would arguably make things worse. I could give you two examples. One would be a a switch to organically grown foods. Uh, the price of organically grown produce averages about 50% higher than the price of conventional produce. If we went to organically grown produce, all those healthy fruits and vegetables would cease to be affordable for a significant share of American eaters and dietary health would go down. A second example, a second a fad, a second uh, infatuation of a lot of people at Berkeley, I suspect, is local food. Uh, and 
once again, if we if we took that seriously and relocalized our food system, a lot of people in the northern latitudes wouldn't be able to get any fresh fruits or vegetables during the winter months, and we'd all lose our access to healthy tropical fruit products uh, uh, year-round. I mean, right now, we, we import half of our fruit consumption and one-third of our vegetable consumption. If we eliminated those imports through relocalization, uh, dietary quality would, would decline. Uh, but another thought here, uh, uh, we don't really have to worry about making these mistakes because neither organically grown foods nor local foods are going to scale up very far. Right now, if you look at the organically grown share of agricultural sales in the United States marketplace, it's only 2%. If you look at the locally grown uh, foods, those that are sold directly through farmers markets or CSAs or farm to school or farm to restaurant or through local food hubs, um, as a share of total agricultural sales, once again, that's only about one or 2%. There are good reasons why we aren't trying to go to organic uh, or to, to local anytime soon. Well, Rob, uh, it's lucky you're not in Berkeley because that kind of language will get you thrown out of the People's Republic. Um, in all seriousness, this is the home of Chez Panisse. Uh, it's the home of Michael Pollan, the author of Omnivore's uh, Dilemma. It's the home of uh, many of the followers of Mark Bittman. Are you, what is it then about the politics of local food production that you so strongly disagree with? Is it wrong? Is it misguided? Or is it just another manifestation of the coastal elites and their preoccupation with their own lifestyle? No, you're skipping over uh, something very important uh, about Berkeley. Uh, I mentioned uh, our obesity crisis, crisis of uh, type two diabetes, and poor dietary health because of the consumption of, especially things like sugar sweetened beverages. Berkeley was the first city in the country to uh, enact an excise tax against uh, sugar sweetened beverages. Berkeley is a pioneer here in uh, moving us uh, toward uh, healthier diets. I, I think Berkeley deserves enormous credit on the food side. Uh, I just don't think I'd want to follow some of their thoughts about the agricultural side. And I'm not sure that that Berkeley considers itself or should consider itself uh, to be uh, a leader on agriculture. After all, it's Berkeley. Well, let's not talk too much about Berkeley because that's all we do, uh, Rob, in Berkeley. Let's talk about uh, obesity, which is a more serious subject. You had a, a piece late last year, why we can't get our obesity crisis under control. Seems to me that the argument in, in, in your new book, uh, Resetting the Table, is the biggest problem in America today with food is not, is not enough, that there's too much and people are overeating. Is that fair? Yes, that's correct. Uh, as recently as the as the middle years of the 20th century, uh, there was still widespread undernutrition, chronic undernutrition, uh, genuine hunger uh, among poor people in America. A lot of people couldn't, uh, couldn't answer the draft for World War II because their diets were so poor they didn't get through the physical exam. Today, it's completely different. Today, people can't pass the physical to get into the army because they weigh too much. 
they're they're inactive physically they're obese uh, now how how did we how did we make this uh, switch isn't that the isn't that that though I, again i don't mean to make this a, a berkeley centric conversation but hasn't berkeley fixed that with the local food responsibility we my daughter and i go to the market dutifully every saturday and, and buy fresh vegetables and fresh fruit and cook it well um it seems to me that I don't know if this is a, a contradiction in your book, but in some ways your book is a defense of large-scale agriculture, but isn't large-scale agriculture the cause of the obesity crisis in America? No, I don't think it is at all. Uh, some people have tried to say that. Um, some people have said, well, large uh, industrial-scale specialized farms in America don't grow enough fruits and vegetables. They only grow corn and soybeans. And they do grow a lot of corn and soybeans, that's for sure. But uh, what our farms grow isn't the same thing as what our citizens eat. Uh, I mean, I mentioned already that uh, we import uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and tropical products year round now, uh, that we would have a great deal of difficulty growing on our own. And as a result, there's far more variety of healthy products uh, in the marketplace today than than ever before. If you look at the per capita availability of broccoli uh, in America, uh, even taking plate waste into account, it's 14, 14 times higher than it was in 1970. And this is this is because of, of imports. So should we be stopping imports? Is that the solution? Or do you believe in higher taxes and more uh, a punitive approach from a, a regulatory point of view to overeating. Well, but I haven't quite finished my point about corn and soybeans. Everyone worries about the corn and soybeans those big farms produce. One third of the corn never enters our food supply. It's used for ethanol, for auto fuel. Uh, more than half of the soybeans are exported. Uh, much of the rest of the corn is is exported. So you you can't you can't draw a causal line uh, between the things that our farms grow and the things that are available for us to to eat. So let's get back to getting obesity under control. Uh, what do you argue? As I said, you, you just had a, a really nice piece um, in The Washington Post on this and you, you, you focus on it in the book. How do we get obesity under control? Well, um, I think, I think cities like Berkeley are showing the way. Uh, you can't count on private food companies to clean up their act without some help from the government. They're competing fiercely against each other. They know they can increase their market share by adding sugar, by adding salt, by adding fat, by making their food products uh, uh, ultra processed and hyper palatable so that we don't even have to chew, it goes down so fast. Uh, uh, our stomach doesn't have time to tell the brain that it's full. Uh, the companies competing against each other aren't going to lose market share by going in a healthy direction on their own. What they really need is, is and my friends are going to accuse me of being the food police here, but what they really need is something to raise them all to a higher standard at the same time. For some products like sugar-sweetened beverages, that should be an excise tax. Uh, one that one that the consumer sees uh, on the shelf, um, not just uh, at at checkout time. For other products, for consumer packaged goods that are in the center of the of the supermarket, those are the those are the 
ultra processed, high in sugar, salt and fat products that we can become virtually addicted to. Uh, they need uh, to have a different kind of nutrition labeling. Right now we have a nutrition facts panel required by the Food and Drug Administration, but it's on the side of the box. It's all fine print and numbers. What we need is something closer to what they have in the UK, which is a front of package uh, system. But the UK has an even bigger obesity problem than the US, or certainly equivalent. Uh, it, it, has, it has a big one, but not as big as the United States. Using bigness. You, you joke in your book about that famous interaction between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the 2016 debates, where Sanders was going on and on about something in Scandinavia and Denmark in particular, and Hillary turns around to him and said, Bernie, uh, I love Denmark, but we're not Denmark. You suggest in your book that we can be Denmark, at least when it comes to food. Is that fair? We shouldn't brag about uh, not being Denmark. I mean, uh, uh, there in Europe, uh, 18 different countries have already enacted at least one of the following excise taxes on sugar sweetened beverages, um, front of package labeling requirements with at a glance symbols that uh, consumers don't have to squint at to learn which foods are green lights, which are red lights and which are yellow lights, or restrictions on the advertising of junk foods to children on the Saturday morning TV programs. 18 different European countries have gone in that direction. The United States at the federal level hasn't done any one of those three things. Rob, you, um, you refer in your book to Fast Food Nation, Eric Schlosser's famous bestseller, which got turned into a very successful uh, movie. Uh, I, I think that was published certainly in the 90s. Uh, nothing's changed since then. Why are these warnings not having any impact? Uh, well, uh, Fast Food Nation was not a front of package requirement. You didn't have to read the book in order to buy your lucky charms. Uh, the, uh, you have to use the authority of the government in some cases, and I think I think this is one of them. Actually, I like Fast Food Nation because uh, that book um, correctly uh, identified our, our unhealthy eating problems with uh, the products of, of food companies, including the food service industry, fast food joints, uh, rather than with uh, farming or agriculture. Schlosser, Schlosser scarcely mentioned agriculture in that book. It, uh, it, it bothers me that we've lost uh, we've lost that uh, perceptive distinction that he made uh, between the real source of our problem and, uh, and a not so real source. Uh, Rob, one of the things I like about this book, Resetting the Table, is you managed to piss off both the left and the right. So um, <laughs> uh, the conservatives will be very angry with the idea of regulation. But I think the left will be very suspicious of your book, particularly because you seem to embrace new technologies when it comes to food. Many, many people on the left, many progressives, I think, uh, I, I run another show called Regenerate, which is about re-embracing the land. I interview people like Joel Salatin, a regenerative farmer who wants to, to sort of re-embrace the land. But you're not against the land, but you're certainly very sympathetic uh, to new technologies. So you had a controversial piece um, a few years ago in the Wall Street Journal in which you argue that the world needs to embrace genetically modified foods. Uh, your book is, is straight talk. So talk to me straight about new technology and food, Rob. 
Well, uh, I know a lot of uh, leaders in the new food movement would would like to essentially do without <laughs> uh, 20th century science and the applications of 20th century science to to food and and agriculture. I think that would be a mistake. It would take us back to a time when growing food required not just too much land uh, and too much labor, uh, but it it delivered too little benefit. Small, diverse, local farms, the kind we had in the United States 100 years ago, didn't make enough money. Uh, the average income of farm households was only two thirds as high as it was for non-farming households. And you have very personal experience about that. You, you come from a farming family, don't you? Yes, yeah. yeah. My, my dad could talk to you about, uh, about growing up on the farm in Indiana in the 1930s at great length, uh, if he were still around. It wasn't really until until we embraced hybrid seeds, new engineering that would allow us to plant seeds without plowing uh, the land, GPS systems, uh, variable rate application equipment, digital soil mapping. Uh, it wasn't um, irrigation systems that didn't just flood the land. They they dripped water onto the land. The land was leveled by lasers, so there wasn't any runoff. It wasn't really until we started incorporating some of these modern science breakthroughs that we, uh, that we reduced the environmental impact of farming. Think about it. In the 1930s in the United States, uh, before any of these innovations, in order to increase more, we had to plow up more land. So we expanded crops into the drought-prone southern plains in the 1920s and then when the drought struck in the 1930s it turned into a dust bowl it was an environmental disaster and a social disaster uh, now after after more than a half century of technological improvements uh, we're treating the land far better if you look at corn production in the united states today we're producing five times as much as we did in 1940 on 20 percent less land if you look at chemical applications in american farming uh, and compared to 45 or 50 years ago, pesticide applications are down by 18%. Insecticide applications are down by 80%. We've embraced something called precision farming today, uh, which does a far better job of, of limiting the damage uh, to nature from, from food production. Uh, people like traditional agriculture because they associate it with, well, with less environmental damage but that's mostly an illusion. We're producing three times as much now as we did in 1940. If we tried to produce three times as much using traditional methods, we would have to cut down more trees, plow up more fragile lands and destroy more wildlife habitat. So uh, this, this makes me what's called an eco-modernist. And I know that that's, uh, that's uh, maybe a little too optimistic uh, for uh, or the taste of some folks. Well, we like eco-modernists, Rob, on this show. One of my best friends is an eco-modernist, Larry Downs. He has a book out. He was on the show a few weeks ago, Pivot to the Future. He includes agriculture as one of the four sectors which are about to be dramatically revolutionized by new technology. We also had two of the most brilliant futurists, I think, in the Bay Area, Poe Bronson and Arvind Gupta on the show, talking about their biotech vision. And they have this very profound statement. They said, 
when they're talking about the biotech future, they said, we're not going to dematerialize the world. We're going to rematerialize it. And it seems to me that that's what's going to happen with agriculture. It's not going to be dematerialized, but rematerialized. So, for example, uh, we're going to see that with um, new kinds of urban farming, which replace the soil. Is that fair? Do you are you a, 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 promo, a proponent of the rematerialization of American agriculture? Well, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to read that book to uh, to be confident with uh, with a view. I, I think that uh, um, there are good reasons to uh, continue using urban real estate uh, for. Here, here's the economist coming out of me to use urban real estate or more rewarding activities than producing food. Those rewarding activities, of course, include uh, um, commercial and, and private housing. Those, those are activities that generate a great deal of wealth. Um, rooftop gardens don't, uh, vertical farms don't. You can grow a lot. You're of not a proponent of vertical farming. There's one big startup in Berlin, which has now come to the US in farm, it just closed a $100 million Series B to scale its urban farming platform. Uh, are you not a, a supporter of, of this, uh, of, of this urban farming technology? Well, I haven't seen it succeed at scale uh, yet. Uh, as, as I say, you can on a vertical farm in, in, in an old factoring building, you can grow a lot of you can grow a lot of leafy greens for sale at high-end restaurants, but uh, this doesn't employ many people. It doesn't produce much more than leafy greens. Uh, and you have to be able to get the real estate cheap. It, it works in hollowed out cities like Detroit and, and Chicago, but it doesn't work very well in high rent uh, cities like San Francisco and Manhattan. I know you're a supporter of genetically um, modified meat. Today, um, uh, Impossible Foods cut their fake meat prices by 20%. Um, what is it about fake meat that pisses off the purists in Berkeley, the Chez crowd? Yeah, yeah, I, sh I should back up. I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of genetically modified meats as such. We don't have any on the market. Yeah, you, uh, you, you're not you're not critical of, of, of fake meat, are you? Uh, well, the fake meat is not is not made with recombinant DNA technology. It's it's either grown in a in a cell culture, and we don't have any of that on the market yet either. Or more likely, uh, you're referring to plant based imitation meats like Impossible yeah. Burgers and and beyond. But are you are you sympathetic to those? Do you think that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was, uh, I apologize for uh, misarticulating the question, but you, you're, you're sympathetic to the idea of an impossible burger, a plant-based meat substitute. Absolutely. Uh, if you're worried about uh, methane emissions uh, from, uh, from cattle, uh, you shouldn't eat hamburgers. You should eat impossible burgers. It has, an, it has a carbon footprint uh, per burger. It's 90% smaller. Uh, it's, I mean, it makes perfectly sen good sense to me. We, um, the, the fashion industry uh, learned to, uh, to make imitation fur and it relieved itself of the need to, to slaughter so many animals. 
The shoe industry makes in imitation leather, leather, so we don't have to skin the hide off so many animals. Uh, why can't uh, modern science give us imitation milk? It's already done that. We have plant-based milk that's now taken over 13% of, uh, of the fluid milk market. So this is the, the sort of the, the CRISPR, the beginnings of a, of a CRISPR revolution when it comes well, to... You know, uh, the, the imitation milks are just made from, from plant materials like rice or like uh, coconuts or like almonds. Uh, CRISPR, is, CRISPR is cutting edge biotechnology, uh, uh, but um, I support it as well because it's, it's so much more uh, precise. It's so much closer to nature. It's, it's like the natural mutations that occur all the time in any living thing. It's not transgenic. It doesn't bring in genetic material from an unrelated species. It shouldn't, it shouldn't uh, leave people as anxious as the first generation of genetically modified organisms did. But uh, I, think, I think what you're hinting at is that as uh, successful uh, so far as uh, these plant-based imitation meats have been and, and uh, Impossible uh, Foods has like increased its production sixfold in a 12 month period. And you're right, they've, they've cut their prices twice. You'd think that a company with, with that much growth would raise its prices, but they're not going for a niche product. They would like to replace uh, animal-based that's Isn't that the danger, uh, Rob, in, in terms of your arguments about obesity? As they cut prices, as uh, impossible burgers become cheaper and cheaper, uh, people will eat more and more of them. Don't, doesn't food need to be more expensive if we're going to be able to deal with our obesity crisis? Well, um, it depends on the food. I would like to make sugar-sweetened beverages more expensive with taxes. Um, I'm not, I'm not an enthusiast for, for animal-based hamburgers. I don't really. It's not a part of my diet. But if you're someone who who likes the taste of a hamburger and fries, and a lot of people do, you're better off buying an Impossible Burger, which doesn't require uh, feeding all of that grain to to animals as so that they can make all the methane that's going to mm. accelerate climate change you're better off getting an impossible burger which doesn't have those those environmental downsides also i might add the impossible burger doesn't have the animal welfare downsides or the antibiotic resistance downsides that you get from products uh, of, of our livestock industry and presumably with the 21st century being the century of pandemics, as we reform our agriculture, there'll probably be less chance of pandemics. After all, COVID seems to have originally begun in a, in a wet market in Wuhan. What about other technologies for the production of food? Speaking of, of sugar, uh, 3D printed chocolates, which are right now being produced. Um, are you a proponent about of, 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 of 3D printed food, is that viable as well? Uh, it's happening. <laughs> we now have 3D printed uh, pizzas uh, that, that you can buy. And we have 3D printers for your own countertop that you can use to uh, cook up uh, your, own, uh, your own delightful products that wouldn't be, uh, that you couldn't make any other way. Mm. Uh, there's uh, a big debate, uh, Rob, about whether 
uh, we should allow 3D printed guns, given your warnings about obesity? Uh, should there be regulation around 3D printed chocolate for that eight-year-old who gorges himself endlessly on computer-produced com- uh, chocolate? No, no. I, I think I think the gun chocolate analogy is not quite close enough to justify, justify <laughs> that. I'm not going to fall. Even though you're a straight talker, you're not going to fall into that one. <laughs> uh, one one thing we haven't mentioned yet, uh, and it's important, and it's a part of my book, uh, is is robotics right and i meant to, that that was my next uh, issue actually um the the, the because I, I think that's a very compelling area because uh, given how poorly paid agricultural workers are and how exploited they are this is one area where i'm completely sympathetic to you yeah um everyone says oh well if you if you mechanize um a strawberry harvest in california um and that's what's happening now they've kind of come up with a robot called the harvest crew that can pick strawberries, a delicate fruit that uh, the fruits ripening at different times it had to be done by hand up until uh, this uh, new innovation. It's not in the fields yet, but it probably will be soon. Some people say, oh, well, that's trouble. That's a problem. You're going to put all those strawberry workers um, out of a job. But when I talk to, uh, to sensitive people who've worked as field hands in in the Central Valley and in the strawberry growing regions, also in California, uh, they they remind me that the great um, charismatic um, farm workers union leader uh, uh, Cesar Chavez said that um, he he loved the workers but he hated the work. Mm. He did not want to perpetuate that kind of um, stoop labor uh, if if we could come up with any alternative at all. And uh, the growers are coming up with an alternative now in, in robots. So the burden is now on us to, to help uh, give an education to the children of today's um, uh, pickers, today's field hands, so that they'll have choices other than, than low paid field work in the future. You don't even want them to take the jobs in the packing shed because those jobs are almost as bad as as being bent over picking berries in the field under the sun. We need, we need a massive upgrade of uh, educational investments for uh, the sons and daughters of our farm worker population today. Mm. More, more, I think, compelling straight talk from Robert Palberg, his book, uh, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat, is out today, February the 2nd. It's a central reading, I think, for the foodies of Berkeley to the bureaucrats of Washington, D.C. in terms of fixing America's problem. The more I listen to you, uh, Rob, the more I wish actually Buttigieg should be made Secretary of Agriculture rather than Infrastructure, rather than Vilsack, who seems like an old hack, to excuse the pun. Yeah, um, yeah. An old Midwestern guy. We don't need more of him. We need Silicon Valley leadership, more innovation when it comes to agriculture. And we can begin, as I said, with your new book, Resetting the Table, I know you're stuck in Watertown, doubly stuck today, February the 2nd, Rob. You've got nine inches of snow and you've got COVID. So what else should people be reading as they're stuck inside in these weird times? Well, if you're interested in weird, fast-changing times and whether we should try to stay up with the times or fight the change, I would recommend uh, a new book about... um, 
Henry Adams called the last American uh, aristocrat, uh, describes uh, the grandson of President John Quincy Adams, who was a, a, a brilliant historian, uh, but someone who uh, found uh, that he was being overtaken by the rapid change, railroads, uh, industrialization, uh, the emergence of cities. This was all too much for him. And the book's fascinating because uh, you can you can see uh, yourself uh, today feeling overtaken by social media or by biotechnology or by robotics. And you can feel the same inclination that Henry Adams felt to, to call a halt to it all. Uh, or to actually what he did to get away from it all was to go to Tahiti. Uh, not all of us can do that today. But uh, his life, I think, is, is instructive in how to, how to navigate these uh, fast changing times. Well, I hope next time Rob will get the chance to talk. It will be at Chez Panisse over a very high-end local food. Uh, we can talk more, or you can straight talk to me about food. Really important subject. Uh, I've made a lot of jokes here, but I, I think this is a, a key subject. And I think your messages about the need for new technology, for reforming farm labor, and above all else, obesity, are key to fixing many of the 21st centuries in America, many of the 21st century problems in America. So I want to thank you, and I wish you a very happy and healthy uh, New Year. Don't eat too much, and we will see you again very soon. Thank you again. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.